Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. So we can find out about some unusual ways to produce energy and turn waste into something useful. So what if we made E. coli bacteria do actually something useful that would actually really help us? Well, a bunch of researchers have done just that, as well as some others who've looked to roses to help them improve their solar panels and turning waste, literal waste, into concrete. Now across human development, one of the very common techniques for coming up with new innovations and ideas is called biomimicry. That's where we see something in nature that works and go, ah, maybe we could use a similar approach. For example, a lot of adhesive cups and so on function on a similar premise to lizards and geckos' sticky feet. Take for another example the idea of Velcro, which was developed after one researcher, one inventor, got very frustrated with all the grass seeds that managed to keep getting stuck in his clothes. That entire concept, these small tiny latch hooks and the felt, became Velcro. There's a whole number of different biomimicry ideas that are out there. And researchers from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany have adapted something that is totally specialised in gathering energy from the sun to help us improve our solar panels. And they're doing it in a way that could be viewed as, uh, through rose-tinted glasses, as revolutionising solar power collection. So plants obviously function by turning sunlight through photosynthesis into food and energy. And that process is great and well understood. And our solar panels, our photovoltaic cells, take sunlight and turn that into electricity. So obviously, any lessons that we can learn from plants and how they've managed to adapt to collect that sunlight and harvest its energy, convert it, is very important. Now, photovoltaics actually work in a very similar way to photosynthesis in plants. The light energy is absorbed and converted into a different form of energy. And through that conversion process is actually uh, where the magic, so to speak, happens. And in this process, it is important to use as large as possible portion of the sun's light spectrum. So you can't just use a couple of wavelengths. You've got to use as much as you can. And you need to try and trap the light from various different angles. Because... You want to try and funnel it into the best spot. And plants have come up with a really great process. Now, you might have seen plants moving to sort of follow the light. But not only that, their leaves themselves, through a long series of evolutionary stages, have been designed to funnel light in to the right spots, as much light as possible, to where it actually needs to go. And this works quite fantastically. And by taking this similar type of approach and applying it to solar panels, we can learn a lot. So the researchers at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, KIT, and the ZSW Center for Solar Energy and Hydrogen Research at Baden-Württemberg have basically been experimenting with what is seen in the petals, the outmost outside petals of a variety of implants. This is the area called the epidermis. Uh, It's a transparent layer on the edges of these plants. And these are the ones that sort of trying to gather in the light and trying to apply the same techniques there seen, for example, in rose petals to their solar panels to try and increase their efficiency. So first to do this, they take a whole bunch of different plant species. 
and study the leaves and how they actually tried to funnel the light in and observed all the optical properties. And what they found is actually rose petals is one of the best species with the ability to do this. And by studying these petals themselves under an electron microscope, you can see that the rose petals actually consist, particularly this outside layer, of a whole range of disorganized, densely packed microstructures with additional ribs with randomly positioned. In other words, it's got this really kind of lumpy and weird shape. And it seems random um, or random position, but it actually helps increase the actual light gathered tremendously. It's a very cleverly evolutionary designed feature. So instead of trying to invent a process that would come up with these, they did the next best thing. And that is literally take the rose petals, put them in a mold and reproduce that kind of structure layer and put that on top of their solar cells. So they didn't have to create a fancy structural process. They just literally molded some rose petals to try and replicate the structure that they saw. And once they put these uh, this little layer onto a solar cell, it led to a 12% efficiency gain in, in light harvested and energy harvested from light. Now, that was great for just straight on vertical light gain. But when they started moving the light around to simulate you know, the movement of the sun, they found that they were getting great gains, even better than 12%, particularly on from really, really shallow angles and just, you know, just coming up from the horizon, but the, the flat point. And basically, when they started testing it with a laser instead of just light, they were able to see that each of those little tiny little structures actually acts as a micro lens which not only focuses the light, but it also enhances the probability that the photons will be absorbed. Now, this method would be applicable to other species. You don't just have to use rose petals, but they were found as one of the first ones they found to actually have the same easy properties. And by coming up with this really disorganized photonic superstructure layer, thin layer that you put atop your solar panel, you can actually greatly increase the yield. And it's a nice way of using an already existing natural process to really help improve renewable energy techniques across the world. We like to think about things that are bad in our world. One of the problems that we're struggling with is carbon dioxide and carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions is one of the big bugbears of the whole climate change global warming debate. A lot of what we're trying to do is trying to reduce emissions of CO2. This is all well and good. But what if there was a way not just to reduce that, but get something from that process? Something that turns CO2 into something useful. And obviously plants are great at doing this. This is why plants are super important. But they're not the only ones who have a monopoly on the conversion of CO2 process. And researchers from the Weizmann Institute of Science have actually come up with a way to reprogram a piece of bacteria to help convert CO2 into energy. So all plant life on Earth, as we spoke about earlier, relies on a process that's pretty much called carbon fixation. Uh, they basically turn carbon dioxide from the environment, they pump it up, and they add some solar energy and some other stuff, and they turn it into sugar that they need for life. And 
there's a couple of different mechanisms, photosynthesis is one of them, but there's a couple of mechanisms for doing that. But the overall carbon conversion process is what's important. And that's great because that also helps the planet out by keeping the levels of CO2 down and producing out of plants, for example, oxygen, which we like to breathe. So we like this whole process. Now, other things in the food chain turn oxygen and produce CO2. So they kind of work the inverse. So we produce kind of the inverse direction that plants produce. And we kind of balance out in a nice symbiotic relationship. We eat sugars made by photosynthetic plants and we turn it into carbon dioxide. So we pretty much do the inverse of the process and we work together. Now, this process, when you go the other way, converting sugars and emitting CO2 is called heterotrophism and humans obviously are part of that process. So what if we turn something that was already going the heterotrophic way, the, the way that we go, converting sugars into CO2 and made it go the other way? And we've actually managed to do that with some bacteria. So Dr. Niv Antonovsky at the Weizmann Institute of Science has found a way to make these bacteria, um, E. coli in particular, and turn it from being a consumer, someone that eats sugar and produces CO2, to make it eat CO2 and instead produce sugar. And so we understand the pathway for turning sugar into CO2, and we understand the pathway for turning CO2 into sugar. We can quite easily see that metabolic pathway in plants. And so by studying that, finding out which genes are controlled and regulating that, and then by adjusting these genes and sort of trying to build it into the bacterium genome, they were able to basically turn the bacteria around and make it turn carbon dioxide or carbon into sugars. And they did this through just changing and inverting the gene process and gene steps inside the bacteria themselves to mimic more what is actually seen in plants. When they first tried this through adjusting the genes, they did all right. Um, the bacteria that they adjusted, uh, they failed to use the CO2 for sugar synthesis, but so they were getting halfway there, they could, but they could do it with some external sugar provider, but they couldn't do the full thing on their own. And of course, that makes sense. You know, after millions of years of evolution, this bacteria is designed to eat sugar, not CO2. So they had to use that millions of years of evolution to help them instead. So what they did is they designed tanks called chemostats, in which they grew the bacteria, gradually nudging them to actually develop an appetite for CO2. So they would start to eat it. Initially, along with ample bubbles of CO2, the, the tanks were also offered a large amount of pyvuriate, which is an energy source, as well as just enough sugar to keep them surviving. So by changing the conditions and putting them into stress, they actually started to go undergo an evolutionary cycle with um, sugar and other food sources in low supply. The bacteria had nowhere to turn but the CO2. And over time, they started to evolve and change. A month went by and things remained pretty static. The bacteria didn't seem to really get the hint, but after a month and a half, some of the bacteria started to do more than just barely survive. And by the third month, the scientists were able to pretty much wean the evolved bacteria from the sugar and raise them only on CO2 and pyvuriate. And when they started to analyze the actual bacteria themselves, they're seeing that, yep, they were just using CO2 in their body mass, no sugars needed to make the cells of the bacteria. So effectively, what they've done is they started to modify the genes originally, and then they also actually then evolved the process to actually make sure that they had the diet for eating CO2 and producing sugars. Now, this is fantastic, and it's a really cool evolutionary research in, in these microbes. But the ability to reprogram or re-engineer E. coli 
to fix carbon and start producing energy could be a really useful way to help use E. coli to tackle excess CO2 in our atmosphere. And this could be helped with our crops and improve carbon fixing pathways and improving crop yields and leading to better adaption for humanity. I worked for many years in the water industry, and that gave me an appreciation for the challenges of delivering clean and safe drinking water to everyone. And in a time of water scarcity, that's very difficult. Places such that are water constrained, such as Australia in the droughts, or places such as Israel or Singapore, don't have much choice when it comes to water, at least clean, fresh drinking water. And Singapore, for example, is relying almost on 70% on recycled water, which they call new water. To, to help give their populace the clean and fresh drinking water it deserves. And recycled water or desalinated water is great, and it really is quite good, almost better than most actual fresh water, so to speak. As universal it is required as actually having drinking water to drink, we also need to dispose of our waste. And most water utilities actually do both stages. Some places, particularly some plants in Melbourne, for example, are turning waste sewage into biogas, and creating energy, which is called sometimes euphemistically sewer mining. But it's a great way, uh, effectively, it's producing like a large cow's stomach to harness the methane inside it and then turn that into energy. And that's really cool. But it doesn't handle the sludge, what's left over from all the energy harvesting and, and gasification that's done. Sure, you deal with one part of it, but you're still left over with this kind of big rubbishy sludge. And there's not much really you can do with it as opposed to dry it out, sell it as fertilizer or leave it in a big farming area. But researchers from Malaysia have tried to come up with an innovative solution to use what they have a lot of, which is waste-disposed sludge from their sewage plants. And they've got a lot of sewage treatment plants, which is great, but they're also getting now a lot of sludge, and they don't have land to just dump it in like we often do in Australia. And that's problem's only going to get worse as the populations increase. And new environmental regulations have meant that they've had to ban burying the sludge because often, particularly in Malaysia, they're seeing it has a high heavy metal content. And that's a huge problem. However, researchers from the University Technology Mara have recently published in the Pertikan Journal of Science and Technology a great way to solve their problem of dealing with the sludge and at the same time help out another part of the local Malaysian economy. Now, Malaysia is a series of islands and, and coastal communities, and that's great. However, that means land is of high demand. And it means any way you can do to help improve construction technique means they need less materials would be great. And so the construction sector is always looking for a cheap and efficient way to produce cement. Now, what this research has found is that this sludge, wastewater sludge, can actually be turned into a cement supplement to greatly improve the material properties. So what they did at first was produce domestic waste sludge powder, DWSP. They dried out and burnt the wet sludge cake to remove any moisture that was left in it. 
and they sieved it out and, 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 and made in varying proportions of DWSP 3 through to 15%. They then mixed this DWSP with a variety of different cements, and they were able to produce not only normal strength concrete, but concrete that's two strength grades higher, which is great because it's actually not only just filling out the concrete, you're actually improving it in some way. And they compared it with, you know, the concrete's normal abilities in compressive strength, water absorption, and water permeability. And also particularly for coastal and island areas, permeability to salt, because the more salt that you get in, the more corrosion that occurs and the more damaging that can be for everyone involved. So DWSP, they found, was quite useful in helping the production of the concrete, made it easier and more efficient to produce it. The more DWSP you add in, it tends to lead to diminishing returns and you start to decrease the strength of the concrete. However, one of the great advantages of this is that the DWSP addition actually means that the cement becomes more resistant to salt, which means that you can have less corrosion, which is quite, quite useful. So what it means is that DWSP can probably be, after a bit more investigation, a partial cement filler that's mixed in with along with the rest of the ingredients of the cement to help improve the properties, particular corrosion resistance. And it's a great way to turn what is otherwise a waste product that you're burying into the ground into something that is really helping everyday life. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about a whole bunch of unusual ways to turn waste and byproducts into energy. Ways to use biomimicry to improve our solar panels and ways to turn bacteria into helpful allies in tackling climate change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.